Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to this month's uh, podcast. A couple of quick uh, announcements to let you know about. Uh, the first one is a massive thanks to everyone who supported uh, my son Reese on his uh, charity walk. Uh, all the details are on the website, but uh, to give you the background very quickly. Uh, he saw a documentary about uh, the, the plight of injured soldiers and decided that uh, he wanted to do something for this. So he originally did a sponsored swim, then he did a little uh, dip in the sea on New Year's Day, and then finally he did a walk from uh, our house to his maternal grandmother's house, which is 16 and a half miles, <laughs> um, uh, which is a long way for little legs. So uh, myself and Reese did, uh, did that walk very recently. Uh, I'd mentioned this on the website, and your generosity was absolutely amazing. Um, I was delighted. Reese was delighted. He was, he was really made up. He'd set himself the target of raising £1,000 for the charity Help for Heroes, which um, helps uh, injured soldiers. Um, before he was eight, that, that's what he's done. He's, he's eight, uh, it'd been a month or so, so he just said, I want to raise a £1,000 before I was eight. And as it was, he ended up raising £2,000 and and, uh, and over £2,000. And a big part of that was due to donations that you uh, you kind people made. Um, so thank you so much for that. Uh, we filmed um, some video uh, as we did the walk. Rather, I filmed some video, uh, which I will put up on the site so you, you can get to see little bits of that. Because there's some quite funny things on there. Um, uh, the bit that tickled me was when he was uh, um, so animated in his explanation to me of why uh, vampires, a vampire, would always beat zombies. <laughs> no matter how many zombies there were. So, so that, that was the, the in-depth philosophical discussion we had uh, as, we, as we did that walk. So thank you to everyone for that. Um, the other bit of news, uh, the Combat Coach program, which I mentioned in the newsletters, for those that are looking to learn more about the, the full side of self-defense, so all the personal security issues, all the kind of the, the science behind it, all the de-escalation skills, um, everything right through to you know awareness of explosive devices, handcuffing techniques, all that kind of stuff. The, the, the Combat Coach program is something uh, that uh, myself and, and Peter Constantine um, are going to be bringing to you very shortly. So if you are interested in, in that, keep an eye on the website. Um, there's a distance learning option for that as well. So for those that live overseas who, who want to expand their knowledge pool so that they don't just know the martial arts, but they know all other aspects of um, self-protection as well, I think that should be something of interest to you. So so keep an eye out for that. Um, and you can always drop me an email at ian at ianabernethy.com if you've got any questions on that. Uh, the other one is the Beyond Bunkai DVD which is uh, a semi-live, um, uh, non-scripted flow drill for Nahanchi or Teki Shodan Kata. Uh, we put that DVD out uh, just before Christmas, and the download version is now available on the site as well. And we also put, um, having made the download version, we put a trailer up there for it as well. So if you're interested in having a little look at that, um, you can find that on the, uh, the website. Okay, so uh, on to this month's uh, podcast. Uh, this month we're talking about uh, solo kata. Uh, not so much the ins and outs of how solo kata can be performed or should be performed. More about the various ways in which you can uh, train it when you're on your own and how you can use solo kata to, um, to supplement your solo training and to give you a wide variety of different workouts and uh, a few things that I do to, to make solo kata as uh, uh, as productive and as uh, interesting as uh, as possible for practice. So I hope you find that uh, that interesting. And then following that, we have the question and answer section, which has proved really popular. Actually, a lot a lot of people have wrote to me saying that they they do like that. Um, so the first part is obviously I've, I've scripted that out. I write it all down and then you know I recite it all to you. And the second part is you know me taking those questions and the resulting um, <laughs> I don't know what the right word would be stream of consciousness that that that, uh, that each uh, each question kicks off. So I hope you enjoy that. Obviously this does mean this this kind of change format is that the uh, the podcasts are getting longer. Um, now, originally, they all used to be about half an hour in length, and now they're getting consistently nearer to an hour. 
Um, now, I, I, I mentioned this to a few people, and, and people said, you know, that's fine, we, we don't mind. But I, I'm conscious of the fact that one of the uh, things people used to like about the podcast is being half an hour long. One of the feedbacks, that, the bit of feedback that we used to get quite regularly is they're ideal for the average commute. So, you know, by the time you leave your door and you get to work, it, for most people it's about half an hour, so the, the podcast was an ideal length. Um, I, I suppose... Uh, with the current format, because it's basically into two sections where we've got the main theme and then the Q&A, you could always listen to one half on the way there and one half on the way back. So you could always argue it's two podcasts put end to end. But, but you know, always feedback's welcome. So if the length is great for you, fine. You know, if you'd like them a little bit shorter, you know, let me know and I'll, I'll try and do my best to uh, uh, to keep... Well, there's thousands of you, so I can't keep everybody happy. <laughs> but, but I'll try my best to reach a happy medium. I think that'll do for this introduction. Um, we're now into the main part of this month's podcast, which is the value and versatility of solo kata for solo training. In this month's podcast, I want to discuss the various ways in which we can train the solo kata. As regular listeners will know, I see kata more of a, a process than as a thing. Uh, we learn and refine the solo kata. We then learn the bunkai, the applications of the kata. We identify the underlying principles so we can adapt and vary. And finally, we gain live experience of applying the techniques and principles of kata in life training. I see this as, as all being kata. It's not just the solo sequences. Um, I therefore use the term solo kata to represent the solo sequences and what most people would simply refer to as kata. It's not really the subject of this podcast, but I'd briefly like to touch on why I see the practice of the solo kata to be so important. The first thing to say is that for the solo kata to have value, it needs to be part of the process I've just described. When isolated from bunkai practice, uh, an analysis of the underlying combative concepts and live practice, uh, kata has little value. When divorced from the process, kata becomes a bit like a seed that's never been planted, a recipe that's never been followed, or a map that's never been taken into the terrain. As part of the process, it has great value, but as on, on its own, it has little value. It should also be noted that the solo kata is not, as is sometimes thought, a substitute for live practice, partner work, or anything else. Um, I mention this because these are among the most common misunderstandings relating to kata. When I'm talking about the practice of solo kata, I'm not saying we should practice kata and only kata, nor am I saying that kata can be viewed as a substitute for other aspects of practice. As part of the process and wider training, kata can have great value, but we always need to remember to view kata as being part of that process. So what part of the process does it play? Uh, the key role of kata, as I see it, is to provide a method of ensuring the continuity of information through the generations. It is the syllabus of karate and that you know informs all other aspects of training. Now, the secondary role of kata, the role that we shall be concentrating on in this podcast, is to provide a supplementary form of solo practice. When we have no partner to train with, the solo kata enables us to refine and rehearse the key combative methods used to illustrate the combative principles that are the core syllabus and the central column of karate. Solo kata helps us to further internalise the lessons learned from our partner practice and live drills. Kata helps us develop ever greater muscle control and efficiency of movement. It conditions us anaerobically. It gives us the opportunity to practice mental focus, being in the moment and bringing on the right combative mindset at will. Kata helps us to coordinate breathing, mind and motion. Kata can also strengthen our bones, our tendons and our muscles. But perhaps most importantly of all, when we practice kata, we are moving in the way the past masters moved. When I listen to great music, read a great piece of poetry, or see a great piece of art, I can gain an appreciation of what the creator of that music, poetry, or art was thinking of when they made it. By moving as the past masters moved, I may be lucky enough to start to think as they thought. Now, I've certainly felt as if I were conversing with the masters on those rare occasions where all aspects of kata clicked into place. Now, when training alone, I like to, you know, I hit the bag, I like to run, stretch, lift weights, and so on. Um, as I've said, kata always needs to be part of wider training. It can't be the only form of solo training. However, for me at least, I would see solo kata as the king of solo training. Every time I practice solo kata, I'm struck by the genius of it. 
Before we're going to discuss some of the ways to train solo kata, I'd like to quickly discuss the importance of having a solid model of the solo kata to work to. Good quality solo kata will give all the benefits previously discussed as well as uh, efficiently delivering the key function of kata which is to inform all, all other aspects of partner work and live drills. A poor quality kata has little to offer. The key thing is therefore to have a clear idea of what good kata is and then work to achieve that. Now, for me, you know, all of the styles uh, have good quality kata and it's an irrelevance which style of kata you choose. Shotokan, Wadaru, Shitoru, Gojuru, Kyokushinkai, etc, 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 all have good, uh, good quality kata. Style itself does not determine what is good kata and what is not, to my way of thinking. Uh, there is good kata and bad kata within all the styles, depending upon the quality with which that kata is taught. Now, now it should be a given that what is good should always be defined by what can be demonstrated to be combatively and biomechanically sound. Personally, I have no time at all for discussions on what good kata should be, based on the arbitrary criteria such as uh, the dictates of a given person or a group, um, arbitrary aesthetics, or a misguided and false notion of historical style purity, because you know, ultimately there's no such thing. If something is truly good, it needs to be combatively functional, and therefore it can be demonstrated to be so. As, you know, as an example of what I'm talking about, I was once chatting with a senior downgrade about a, a, a kata, uh, when he commented that I was wrong to pivot on a certain part of my foot on one part of the kata. So, you know, always keen to learn, I explained that a move that way to ensure the hip was driven uh, in the same direction as the strike, and hence that seemed to be the best way to get the weight into the strike. Um, his way uh, had the body moving in the opposite direction of the strike. So I, you know, I asked what was the advantage of his way that I was obviously missing. I couldn't see why you'd do that. Um, it was explained you know, that, that I was missing the point and that a person senior in rank to us both had told him that the, his way was the right way to move. You know, I asked, you know, had he explained to him why that was the case? Why was that the right way? Uh, I was told that it hadn't been explained to him why that was the right way. Um, and regardless of what would lead to a more powerful strike, his way was the right way because Sensei said. Now, had he given me a good combative reason to change, I would have done so in a heartbeat, you know. Uh, but I'm not going to make something less effective to appease the, the arbitrary dictates of people who don't even understand why they're doing what they're doing. So, um, if you're lucky enough to have been taught a kata which can be demonstrated to be both biomechanically and combatively sound, regardless of style, then practicing that kata will be very valuable. Now, what most people do when practicing solo kata is just to run straight through it. Uh, and that's a good way to practice, you know. After all, that's ultimately what solo kata is. However, there are other ways to practice solo kata that can have value, can add variety to training, and are lots of fun too. When training away from the dojo, you know, training on your own, solo training, one of the first problems people report is a lack of space. Now, there's no dedicated dojo in my house, you know. Now, I can work to put that right if you'd all be so kind enough to order a full set of DVDs and insist that everyone you know does the same. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on, you know, work on the solo, uh, the, getting the dojo done for solo training. But, however, at the minute, I have to muddle through like everyone else does in the garage or the living room when the rest of the family are out. So, while I don't have the space to do many cutters straight through, uh, which is also a problem I have when I'm on the road for seminars, you know, training in hotels and things like that. Um, I can nevertheless practice all kata in a limited space by breaking them down. And even when I have space, there is still plenty of benefit to breaking kata down in this way. There's sometimes uh, an assumption that breaking the kata down into segments is something that you do when you're learning the kata. And then having learnt it, um, that's a practice you can abandon. However, breaking the kata down into sections gives you a chance to isolate problem areas and work on the detail and feel of that particular section. This can allow for uh, more mindful repetitions of any given section, and hence that section will be greatly improved when put back into the totality of the kata. You have the opportunity to self-check, to analyse a section being practised, and then to refine and improve it. Rather than do a given kata five times straight through, you could do all the sections that make up that kata five times each. Or, space permitting, 
you could do each section four times uh, through before doing the whole kata straight through to conclude the practice of that particular kata. By adding in the practice of, of working on sections uh, into your kata training, you get to zoom in on the details of the kata, and it helps keep your practice mindful. Um, so you're not just you know, run, mindlessly running through it, you're analysing everything you do, and this can lead to significant improvements in the quality of your kata. Now, how you break it down is up to you, but I would suggest that you break the kata down into the sequences uh, that are in accordance with the natural rhythm of the kata. Uh, kata should not be metronomic. Each kata has its own distinct rhythm, and breaking things down into the sequences can help focus us in on that rhythm. Uh, another way to uh, vary practice and to help improve kata is to vary hard and soft practice. Hard practice is where all emotions are performed as normal. Soft practice is where uh, all emotions are slowed down, such that the karateka can better concentrate on the flow of the motions, the contraction and relaxation of the muscles, the details of structural alignment, uh, the coordination of motion with breathing, and, and so on. A slow or soft practice does not mean half-assed, or half-assed for all American listeners. Uh, when the motions are done slowly or softly, the mental intent should be as intense as normal. There should, uh, just because we're going slower, there should be no wandering of concentration. You still need to be fully in the moment and totally aware of all parts of your body and your environment. This form of practice is great for developing that strong mind-body link, which is vital for high-level martial arts. You need to be able to control your own body. As, as I tell my students, if you can't control yourself, then you stand no chance of being able to control the enemy. A good mind-body link is vital. When we move, we need to be aware of what every single part of our body is doing, where it is and what state it's in. And, and soft practice can be a very useful part of this. And soft practice is also a nice way to warm up, to cool down, and you know, training on the days where you just, you just don't have a hard session in you. But it should be remembered that soft practice is a supplement to hard practice. It can't replace it as we need to be able to move fast and explosively in conflict. Can't do it soft all the time. So as with most things, you know, it only has value when it's part of the mix. In any session, you could uh, alternate the hard and soft practice of the kata you're working on. Or you could do something of the lines of, uh, you could do soft, hard, 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 soft. You know, just vary it as you see fit. Um, hard and soft practice can also be applied to sequence practice and most of the other variations on kata training that we'll be discussing in this podcast. Now, it's quite common for kata to be practiced in well-lit areas on perfectly flat and level surfaces, you know, as you'd find in most dojo. Um, but only a fortunate few have such a perfect floor at home. But this is not the disadvantage it's sometimes assumed to be. It should be remembered that the forebearers of karate practiced in backyards and any other available space. It should also be remembered that it's, it's extremely rare that we'll ever fight in such perfect uh, conditions. And hence we need to be familiar with how to adapt to rough terrain. You know, practice with your shoes on. Practice cutter on concrete, gravel, grass, mud or any other surface you can find. Don't always look for a good surface. Work on any surface. You know, been, obviously been mindful of you know, safety issues. And this can make cutter training very interesting. And it teaches you to adapt and vary your motions. Uh, kata done on soft, rough um, and uneven surfaces uh, may not feel as nice as when done on a perfect surface. But we need to acknowledge that we rarely get the perfect circumstances in conflict. It's also a mistake to always practice kata on flat surfaces. Try practicing kata on slopes too. You'll find that you have to alter your stances in order to avoid totally losing your balance and to move most efficiently, depending on whether you're going up the slope, down the slope or across the slope. And you also need to remember that kata should always be understood to be a means to an end. Now, sadly, in, in many of today's dojos, solo kata has became the end. It's, it's replaced combative efficiency as the goal of training. Now, uh, kata on a slope, or on you know, bad ground, if you like, will be different from kata in perfect conditions. Now, for some, that will mean the kata is wrong. However, the practical karateka, which you know is probably you if you listen to this podcast, knows that right is always right for the circumstances. You know, it's what works works best in the circumstances. It's not some arbitrary dictate. So what is right on a perfect floor will not be right on a slope. 
by varying the circumstances in which we practice kata, we learn to adapt to varying circumstances. Uh, we help uh, kata fulfill its purpose when we do this, and we make ourselves better martial artists in the process. It's just good fun too. It's variety in training. You know, variety is always good. When I, when I run, I love to stop off at various points along the way and practice a little kata. Anywhere will do. I like to adapt it to streams, stairs, trees, fences, curbs, walls, etc. As a little aside, I find practicing kata in the great outdoors to be hugely enjoyable. There's something very satisfying about practicing kata in the wind and the rain, or while drawing in the fresh morning air, the sound of nature all around, while the newly risen sun shines down. I've even done kata on the top of a fell, ankle-deep in snow, snow-capped peaks all around, with only the moon and the stars for company. These are great experiences. Picking the right location and the right time of day for kata practice can just add a whole new dimension to it. Um, away from its combative value, they're just very valuable experiences. When training indoors, we can also learn to adapt to the environment. You know, We don't always have to submit to the temptation to clear a space. Practicing kata where you have to shuffle, slide and adapt to complete motions is a great form of training. As a kid, you know, most of my kata practice was done in my bedroom where I only had a few feet to move. You know, and because of that, I learned to intuitively adapt my footwork and stances that I, so I could still perform the kata. Uh, training around clutter and in a limited space is a great practical way to train. And it's a good complement to breaking down the kata into sections as we discussed earlier. So whether by design or necessity, training in a less than ideal space is a good way to add variety to kata practice and to learn and move efficiently in any environment. Another way I like to add variety to practice and to make kata training all the more challenging is to splice kata together. To give a very simple example, you take the first half of kata A and move seamlessly into the second half of kata B. Having done that, you then do the first half of kata B and move seamlessly into the second half of kata A. You've then done the entirety of both kata, but the fact you need to switch means you can't do them mindlessly. You need to be in the moment. Uh, you can also take three kata and divide them into thirds and so on. I mean, this should not be done too often, as the priority should always be the kata as intended. However, as a means to add variety and an additional degree of challenge, it can be an enjoyable and useful part of the mix. A similar way in which you can practice kata is to fold it in on itself. Uh, and what I mean is to start with the second half of the first kata and then flow from the last move of the second half into the first move of the first half and then end the kata on the last move of the first half. <laughs> that makes it sound way more complicated than it is. All, all I mean is you cut the kata into two halves and swap the ends over. Yeah. So the second half becomes the first half, the first half becomes the second half, right? Uh, this doesn't obviously doesn't work for an entirely symmetrical kata, such as you know nahanshi or teki, uh, but it works for most. Uh, you can also mix things around a little more if the kata's a bit longer, um, such as like a shanku or kanku dai. What I like to do on that one is to split the kata into quarters, and then mix the order up in which I perform those quarters. So, for example, I'll do the second quarter, the fourth quarter, the third quarter, then finish with the first quarter. So it, it, it you've just re arrange the kata if you like, with each kata, uh, each section, sorry, flowing seamlessly into the next. All the same motions get practiced, but in a way that gives you know, a bit of variety and a bit of extra uh, challenge. Now, it's worth noting here that I believe the order of many kata to be the way they are is for a reason. And that reason being that the bunkai progresses such that the early parts of the kata deal with the basic skills that occur early on in an altercation and the latter parts of the kata deal with the more advanced skills and support skills if the situation is not brought quickly to an end. So when we mix up the order of the kata, we need to acknowledge that it's simply a temporary variation to add challenge and a bit of variety into practice, um, as well as giving us the opportunity to practice a few physical transitions that we would not otherwise have the opportunity to do. But the original order of the original kata is significant, though, and, and that needs to be acknowledged. We have discussed how solo kata gives us the chance to develop high levels of muscle control by working to get our body to replicate the good kata of any given style. Where good is defined as motions that are demonstrably combatively and biomechanically efficient. 
One other way we can train to refine our solo kata and bring it closer to our ideal kata is through blindfolded practice. Uh, by, by, by blindfolded, I simply mean closing the eyes, as it's good to have the ability to see again should you need to. Uh, when I was a kid, I was once practicing kata with my eyes shut in a paved bit of my mum's garden. And there's a, there was a small wall around this area, I'll say 18 inches high, uh, on the other side of which was a drop of around two and a half feet. <laughs> Do I really need to finish this story? You know. So anyway, naturally, I'm doing the kata. Uh, I remember exactly what it was as well. It was Kashanku, and it was the first nukate. It got to that point. And naturally, I went over the wall as my brother and my mum watched on helpless from the kitchen, You know, as in helpless with laughter. Oh, so rule number one, if you're going to do kata with your eyes shut, is to ensure that you have space to do so. Also, this is not a form of training to mix up with limited space or training on uneven surfaces. Now, so once we remove vision, we have to do our kata entirely on feel. And it can be really useful to close your eyes, do a few moves, and then check your position. Open your eyes and check your position. Now, what many people find is that the hands are not where they thought they'd be or the feet are not where they thought they'd be, uh, or they've moved off the line of the kata, you know, they've twisted slightly one way or the other. And all of these little variations, unintentional variations, point out that there's a disconnect between what they think they are doing and what they're actually doing. Uh, the mind-body link is therefore not as it should be. So by refining and repeating the motion, and then checking again, you know, the mind-body link can be strengthened. So when we've got our eyes shut and we do one thing and it turns out that's exactly what we've done it shows that you know our bodies we're in good control of it we, what we feel we're doing is what we're doing now a variation on this form of practice can be to close your eyes and visualize a perfect performance while you do the kata so in your mind's eye you see yourself doing the kata as you're doing it and you can do the kata hard or soft for this form of practice uh, this isn't a podcast on visualization although we may do one on that in the future but but when done right, visualization has been shown to significantly improve uh, athletic performance. So when you visualize the kata as you're doing it, it can have a powerful effect upon performance. And I used to use this as a method of practice to really good effect when I was preparing for gradings and uh, kata competitions. Uh, now what I would do is I'd visualize the kata a couple of times while lying down on kneeling. I'd then do the kata a few times with my eyes closed while visualizing it. And then finally, I'd do it, you know, just straight through, you know, with my eyes open. And this worked well for me, and, you know, I hope such practice will be useful to you too. Okay, it should probably go without saying that visualizing your enemies should also be a, be a part of solo work, kata training. Um, that practice will help support your pair work and your live drills. Uh, visualization alone has been shown to have a good effect on performance, and visualization combined with physical reenactment will be all the more effective. A good knowledge of bunkai is vital, though. Uh, if, when you're visualising, you're seeing lunge punches from 10 feet, attacks from the compass points with mandatory choreography, as many do, then you can make a case for saying that visualising and rehearsing the ridiculous will actually be harmful to your development. This will not be the case for those who make the correct use of bunkai, though. Um, if you visualise good bunkai, uh, then your solo kata training will reflect uh, reality with all parts of training working together towards a, uh, a common goal. Now, it's, you know, it's very important to have a set and precise ideal kata that we try to emulate in order to develop efficiency, muscle control, and precision. So long as biomechanical and combative efficiency are not compromised, I don't think it really matters what shape that ideal kata takes. It doesn't really matter what style it comes from. All good kata, regardless of style or variation, can fulfill that purpose perfectly. See, while it's important to have an ideal set kata to use as a datum uh, to develop your muscle control and your efficiency, you know, your you hand needs to be in precise places and your work to get to those precise places. Um, it should be understood that in combat, you can't be shackled by the rituals of kata. We need to be able to adapt and vary according to the circumstance. We have already talked about varying the environment, but we have yet to discuss varying the enemy. Uh, bunkai drills and live kata-based sparring give you the ability to do, adapt to the enemy. But you can also support that by varying the enemy, the invisible enemy if you like, in solo practice. 
In most cutter, there's an assumption that the enemy is the same height as the cutter's performer. Um, and that's a fair enough assumption, as it gives a set datum to help develop the precision and muscle control that we've been discussing. However, what can be good is to occasionally open up the cutter, perform it while visualising enemies of different heights and builds, working at angles in relation to the visualised enemy as opposed to the line or embassy of the cutter, um, switching to a different motion of the cutter where the actions of the visualised enemy make it prudent to do so and so on. Uh, this can be done slowly or quickly and it kind of transforms the cutter into a kind of uh, free-flowing shadow fighting. Uh, this is obviously no substitute for bunkai drills and sparring with a partner or partners, but it can be a useful support to such training and it can help further internalize the lessons of kata. Uh, again, the physical motion and visualization support and mimic what is being done in drills and live practice. Because such open kata is, well, open, there's no set datum, so it's not good for developing the mind-body link. But it's great for developing the ability to vary motion and to further internalize the combative depth and breadth each kata contains. Solo kata, when done as part of the process and as a part of you know, a wider field of training, can be extremely valuable. I find it to be one of the most enjoyable and effective forms of solo training. Um, solo kata does not need to be a matter of simply repeating the entire solo form over and over. There are plenty of other ways to practice and benefit from kata while training alone that will support training in the dojo. In this podcast, I've covered some of the methods I've used to good effect, but there are plenty of others, and I hope these suggestions provide enough food for thought for you to think of your own ways to practice solo kata and, and to use it to enhance your martial skills. Solo kata is an opportunity to learn from the founders of our art. Within kata, we find the syllabus of karate and we find its most important lessons. Solo kata can be used as a form of supplementary solo training that will support our partner training, strengthen us and make us fitter, improve that mind-body link, improve the precision and efficiency of our motions, help us to internalize a whole host of combative methods, help us to develop mental focus and flow, uh, to be in the moment, to adapt to an imperfect environment, to help support a combative development through an effective combination of motion and visualization and much more besides. It is a great and versatile form of supplementary solo training and a vital part of the wider karate process. It can be fun, challenging and it can provide many ways to train alone. In fact, solo kata has way more to offer than most people appreciate and I hope some of the suggestions in this podcast have helped you to further realize the value and versatility of solo kata training. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found that very useful. Uh, what we're now going to do is look at some of the uh, listeners' questions. Uh, and this has proved to be a very popular part of the podcast. So, you know, I'm, it was a suggestion from listeners. So, as I say, I make these podcasts for you. So I'm glad everyone enjoys them. It seems that people enjoy submitting the questions. And everybody seems to enjoy listening to the answers. So we'll, we'll keep this going. So what I do is, uh, a few days before the podcast is due to go out, uh, or I'm due to record it rather, I, um, I put a, a request for questions on the Facebook uh, page and on the Twitter feed and then people uh, send them back in. And not all questions we can do simply because some of them weren't really big answers uh, of full full in-depth explorations which you know would, would mean uh, podcasting themselves. So I'll put those to one side and we'll use them as themes for future uh, podcasts. But the ones I feel we can kind of uh, are appropriate to the, the podcast of the month and that I feel will fit well with this format, you know, that we can give reasonable information on in a short place of time, then you know those those are the ones I'll uh, I'll answer. Uh, so yeah, okay, without further ado, let's get into this month's uh, questions. And the first one we have is from Kevin Jackson on Facebook. And he said, uh, my question is, what are your views on thoughts on uh, training appropriately for self-defense? And by appropriately, I mean learning how to defend yourself while keeping reasonable force and self-control in mind. Ensuring you try to think about the consequences of your actions, i.e. the balance between the need for survival and the potential lethal nature of our skills. And I love that. That's such a great question and it allows me to <laughs> get on my soapbox and talk about one of my favorite issues. So this is where I'm going to begin from, right? What you need to make sure that you do, if you're claiming to teach self-defense, 
without a good understanding of the law of the land where you live, because these podcasts are international, we've got people all over the globe. So, you know, wherever you, you're claiming to teach, if you don't know the law as it, as it stands for where you live, you're not teaching self-defense, right? You, you, you're either teaching martial arts and saying it's self-defense, so you're teaching a bad version of self-defense. The, the, the law needs to be a fundamental part of what you're teaching. And I'll explain why in a moment, right? But what I do is I, I've, I've, I've studied with people who understand the law greatly. I've talked to magistrates. I've talked to police officers. I've talked to government departments. I've got all the information I can get. I've read through it all. I've checked my understanding with people who really get it. Um, I've talked to police trainers. Uh, and then what I've done is for my students, uh, I give them a little handout that explains this is the law, what the law actually says. Uh, this is my understanding of it. And, you know, check that my understanding's right by reading all this information. And the reason that I do that is because you need to know what the law is to enable you to forget about it. <laughs> that, that may seem like a little bit of a contradiction, but allow me to explain. Uh, been, I can't speak for the rest of the world because I don't know the whole world's self-defense laws, right? But I, I do know mine. I do know the law of the land as it stands in the UK. And most people don't bother to look at it and they make massive assumptions based on stories in the press or what they imagine in their own mind or they pass off a continual hearsay. There's a myth in the UK that people who protect themselves end up in jail. If you just look at the statistics, and it just doesn't happen. If you look at the stories behind the headlines, it doesn't. It's not happening. It doesn't happen. The, the, the most famous example is a, that I can think of off the top of my head is a farmer who shot some intruders in the UK and then uh, went to prison. And everybody was up in arms saying, "Oh, it's terrible! You know, he's defending his property and blah 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 blah." people need to do is actually look at the facts. What he did was he shot a guy in the back as he was escaping his house and then left him there while he went to the pub to have a beer. So he left him there to die. And that's, that's why he went to jail, right? Nothing to do with defending himself. When we're talking about reasonable force in the UK, the, 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 the law does define what reasonable force is. And it actually says that you do not, it doesn't expect you to judge to a nicety the level of force used. It acknowledges that you'll be in an extremely stressful situation. So you don't need to be thinking to yourself, oh, do I apply this punch with, you know, 10% power, 20% power, 100% power. It doesn't expect you to judge it to a nicety. You won't go to jail for that. Right? If you knocked somebody unconscious and then could continue to kick them in the head for the next 20 minutes, you probably will. But if you whack somebody hard, knock them unconscious, and they go down the ground and die on the fall, or they die from the impact of your first kind of blow, you're not going to go to jail for that. You know, because you, you can, the law's on your side. It will allow you to demonstrate that you did, uh, you acted intuitively and instinctively. And again, the law doesn't expect you to judge to a, to a nicety. So because of this myth that the law is out to get you, what people do is, and they teach it this way, oh, you've got to be careful about what you do and, you know, don't hit them any harder than you need. And what happens is that, that you get all these kind of uh, conflicting thoughts at a moment where you need to defend yourself. Instead of concentrating on the job in hand, you're thinking about the consequences of your actions. So if you educate yourself on the law and you educate your students on the law, you'll find things like in UK law, you don't need to have run away first or tried to escape. Um, you are allowed to strike first. Um, it doesn't expect you to judge to a nicety the level of force used. Um, it's reasonable in the circumstances based on your understanding of the circumstances, even if your understandings were later proved to be incorrect. And, and, and even if those views were unreasonable, so long as you can prove that you legitimately held them, you're entitled to rely on them in court. Um, see, all of this is there, you know, for anyone who cares to look at it, but most people don't. And then there becomes this myth that, oh, if I defend myself, I'm going to end up going to jail. And it's just not true. Um, so, so having educated ourselves that the law is on our side, what we can then do is forget about it. You know, in, in, in the, the middle of the situation, we don't need to think about the law, which I think is kind of Kevin's point. We don't need to think about, well, you know, am I going to go to jail for this or not? You defend yourself. And then afterwards, you know that what you did was in accordance with the law itself, right? And, and, and the main thing is, as well, for, for me and I think anyone else, um, you need to know that you would never fight. You would, you would never resort to physical skills unless you had no other option. None. So if, if a guy um, spills my pint, right, I don't care. That doesn't matter. I mean, it's like if he insults me, um, if, 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 none of this matters to me. You know, it, it's not important. I remember, I think it was Jamie O'Keefe 
who did a, a brilliant piece where he said that uh, unless what someone's doing is going to affect your life in the, you know, the long term, it's not worth fighting over. So if I lose a shirt or someone insults me or cuts me up in a car or calls me a name, none of that, it's, it's an irrelevance. Oh, it's not going to affect me. The only time that I would resort to using my physical skills is when there's no other option. Now, because I know there's no other option, I, I don't feel bad about whacking this guy then because there was nothing else I could do. Right? And because I'm in that situation and because I know what the law is and because I'll be able to demonstrate that I had, I had no other option but to do what I did, I don't need to worry about the law. I know that the law will be on my side. So uh, this might be... Um, subject that we could do a little bit more on on future podcasts but my, my, the basic i've gone round the houses there that a bit but my basic response would be learn what the law is because most of the time it's not what people think it is uh, i've looked at canadian law i've looked a little bit of danish law certain parts of the american law and and, and again it, it's generally a lot better than people think so learn what it is then you know that, okay, the law's on your side. It's not stupid. It doesn't expect you to be able to do things which aren't practical in the circumstances. It knows that you'll be stressed. It knows that you'll be afraid. It, it knows that you can't judge things to a nicety. And then you can forget about it and you're not worrying about it at the time. Because, you know, when you've got a, a real self-defense situation, you can't be thinking of anything else other than your survival, right? Uh, the law comes uh, comes after that. So I hope that was of some use. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Next question, uh, uh, Andy Shipton uh, was asking me about um, my views on uh, competition, uh, the competition method of sparring, you know, the common points kind of karate method of sparring, and whether it helps or hinders uh, a student. And this came off the back of what I did. Um, I don't know if any of you have all seen this, but um, on the website I put some videos of the uh, the Kudo uh, competition format which allows uh, headbutting, uh, elbows, throws, takedowns, groundwork. It's kind of like a, a karate-judo hybrid, really. Uh, and I'd made the point that I felt that that form of competition was, although not identical to by, by any means, it was a lot closer to the traditional art. And that if we were going to have a form of competition, wouldn't it make sense that the form of competition that we have is, is closer to the art that we practice? Um, so it was just you know, a discussion starter, really. Uh, with the points form of competition as it's it's done now, the kind of like WKF style of competition, uh, it's very, very different from the traditional art. If it wasn't for the fact we wear similar suits and we both goes by the name of karate, you wouldn't even recognize them as being the same discipline. Um, they've just evolved so differently. So my point would be, I don't, I don't think that comp points competition as it stands now has any relevance to the traditional art at all. That, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Uh, we, we can do competition uh, for the enjoyment of it. I know plenty of good groups actually that do both well in competition and a very good traditional practical martial artist, but but they keep the two separate. It's when you start mixing and matching that you have a problem. You know, you tell your students that, yeah, this is a competition technique, but if you did it a bit harder, it would work in the street. Well, the environment's just totally different. But if you keep them totally separate, um, and as we talked about in the, the Martial Map podcast a, a few months ago, um, I, I, I see no reason why why you can't do, do both. Um, so whether competition helps or hinders the student isn't really whether they engage a competition or not. It's whether they let, let it affect other areas of practice. So the guy who does comp competitive karate loves it, enjoys it, gets a lot out of it. Great. Uh, and also does the self-defense stuff and the traditional stuff and keeps them in separate, understands that, you know, there's, there's the, the different things. One's for fighting to a set of rules, another karateka in a given environment. One's from escaping from uh, violent thugs and lunatics in another environment. As long as they keep them separate, it, it'll work just great. They'll have no problems. It, it, the competition karate will neither help nor hinder them. Uh, where we have problems is where people start to mix the, t the two, um, two together. And as I talked about in the Marshall Map po podcast, there's sometimes, uh, uh, Jamie Club calls it the byproduct myth, and I, you know, I love that phrase, and I wish I'd came up with it. <laughs> but, but, but people train in one thing and believe that um, somehow that will develop skills for something else. So my thing is, if you're training in competition, train for competition. If you want to train for self-defense, train for self-defense. What you shouldn't be doing is training in competition and going, yeah, but it'll help my self-defense skills. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it does or it doesn't. Don't train for one thing in order to achieve something else. But we'll check out that Kudo thing, because I, I think, you know, for people who are more pragmatically orientated, the crossover with the Kudo style of competition is greater. So it may be the future. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of um, uh, pans out. 
Uh, the next question we have is from uh, John uh, Lopez. And uh, John was saying, he says, in your opinion, do you feel that Wadaru, as practiced and shown in the DVD video of uh, Utsuka Sensei, is a better reflection of what Funakoshi's karate looked like before the university changes that took place? Um, so I, this is quite interesting because I'm, I'm going to move offline a little bit with that one, then we'll come back to that that, that point. But um, there's a couple of things. One is Utsuka did make changes himself, you know, to the, and he's quite open about that in, in his books. He, he makes reference to learning uh, Nahanshi from uh, Motobu and saying that Motobu was very conservative and didn't change things, but he's changed a few things in line with his own understanding, which is fair enough. Kata should evolve, you know. Um, it's right that whoever gets hold of it, if they feel they can do something to it to make it better, then then then, then do that. The the central thing is is there's sometimes an assumption that the um, the original that's what people want they want to say oh I want what the what the original kata was now there's a couple of problems with that I think uh, one is I don't think there's ever been an original the, the kata varies great greatly from generation to generation okay people have always changed the kata because that's the way it should be. Um, I'm not saying about changing it just because, you know, they didn't learn it well enough or, or, or the, the, um, the forgetful or uh, something was a bit difficult. So they, they just said, oh, I'll, you know, I'll just do it my way instead. But changing it to adapt it in line with their own understanding and their own build uh, has always gone on. Back in the day as well, it was even quite common for, uh, uh, let's, let's say, a master de designs a kata. He'd teach it one way to one student and another way to another student. <laughs> so um, you know, even first generation students would do it differently, and when you can see that because we've got all the different styles today. So, so I think anyone who's searching for um, the original kata is likely to be disappointed because I don't think the there is no such thing. Uh, and if they did, it might not be the right way of doing things for for, for them. The important thing, as we talked about in the main section of the podcast, is they've, they've got what a kata that is biomechanically sound, is combatively sound. And that every single part of um, the, the kata, they know exactly what it should be. They know exactly where the hand should be at that given point, exactly how the stance should be, everything else. So they can develop that muscle control by working uh, to uh, to that datum. So that's one part of the question. So so just because something's older doesn't necessarily mean it's better. You can also make a converse argument saying, okay, if we went back to, let's say, you know, what Funakoshi did, well then we lose the additions that other masters since then have, have made to it, you see, the, the other kind of improvements that they may have made so it, it's, it's never straightforward we've always got to judge it on its merits rather than just saying, well it's older, it's better, it's newer, it's better In terms of what Funakoshi's early karate was like, and, and the, again I would suggest that the best place to see that is Funakoshi's early books um, if you look at it compared to like say modern Shotokan um, you see that you know the obvious one is the stances are a little bit higher, um, quite a lot higher in fact, and it does look a little bit more like the kata you would see in uh, Wado or um, Shitoru. That doesn't necessarily mean it's any better or worse though, it just means it's, um, <laughs> uh, it, it's different. So if you want to know what the early fun karate Funakoshi looked like, then you, you want to have um, a, a look at that. And, and, and on that one as well, again this will be another good one now I've started talking, I realise... <laughs> We can expand this one into a full podcast as well. But it's often like um, Funakoshi's, uh, like Jiro, Funakoshi's son and, and Nakayama are credited with the, the changes to, to Shotokan. Um, but there are, there's footage, there's some great bits of footage that are out there of Funakoshi performing Naihanshi Kata, or Teki Shodan, at two different points in history. One way you see him and he's fairly upright, and the second one he's dropped his stance quite a way down into what would be more like uh, uh, modern Shotokan. So we can see Funakoshi himself evolved it through his practice as well. So if you're saying about what was Funakoshi's practice like, well, you've got to ask it, at what point? <laughs> and in Karate Do, My Way of Life, Funakoshi said, you know, that you know, Karate's evolved. It's his, he uses the term, he says, it's a long way what he does now from what he did in uh, Okinawa as a child. That doesn't mean it's, it's, it's better or worse. It just means it's, it's kind of different. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in what Funakoshi's early karate was like, look at Funakoshi's early books. You know, if you can get a, um, an early edition of uh, Kyohan, um, uh, the Neptune Publications one's brilliant for that. Uh, that'll give you a better idea, you know, and his um, karate jitsu book, or, uh, the Toji jitsu book out there as well, which give you an idea of how it's, how it's evolved. But um, yeah, I sometimes feel that the quest for the original is a bit of a, a futile quest, really, I guess. So it's an interesting question, that John, and um, again, you know, <laughs> I think yeah, we'll return to this one, I'm sure. Uh, so the next one we've got is from uh, uh, Carlos uh, Rojas, 
And there's a couple of questions that, that Carlos had, but they're all kind of related. So the, the first one was, um, he was asking what my thoughts were on teaching overweight students, uh, particularly with regards to, you know, the health uh, side of things. Now, I, I guess the first thing is it depends on, you know, how overweight are we talking? Because there's a big difference between being, being a few pounds overweight and being, you know, several stone overweight. Um, so if, if it was somebody who was very, very overweight, then obviously I would suggest that, you know, you need to take medical advice on that. You need to talk to that person and see what their doctor advises. Um, martial arts might not be the right activity for them at that particular point. Because, again, it just depends, you know, it depends on that individual and, and the state of their health, and you should really kind of consult with the professionals about that. If we're talking to someone who's, who's you know, a wee bit overweight, you know, then uh, who's, you know, otherwise healthy but, but carrying too much weight, then obviously, like all aspects of the, the martial arts, we need to progress in intensity. So through our martial practice, we, we get, you know, fitter and stronger and healthier and lose those, you know, excess pounds. Um, so we all start at a level and then the training needs to kind of ramp up. So encouraging people to work, you know, within their, uh, the confines of safety to push themselves without pushing themselves uh, too hard, I think would be uh, would be particularly important. Uh, and also, I mean, there should be a view, I think, as, as part of like uh, the martial development and developing our health, that if someone is overweight when they start martial arts, the eventual aim, of course, should be to not be overweight. Because we lead a more active lifestyle, which obviously the martial arts is a very active lifestyle, and that will help us shed the pounds. Uh, the other thing is, you know, that you know, if we want peak performance, then we need to be more careful about what we eat. And also, you know, the martial arts as a as a as a lifestyle has a high emphasis on on, on discipline, and so we need to make sure that we uh, we discipline ourselves as well, so that we don't eat everything that we want to eat all the time. You know, uh, that we're careful about what we do, and obviously that should see the weight come off. So, I mean, if you've got someone who starts as a little bit overweight, fine. You know, that's all part of the progress. The people I love to see starting martial arts are people I love to see working in the gyms. Aren't the guys who've, you know, been there for years and years and years. It's people starting out. They're the ones who always impress me the most. The ones that are making that kind of change in the lifestyles. So, you know, that's a wonderful thing if you're getting people who want to come to the martial arts to improve the quality of their lives. Fantastic. Um, we also need to acknowledge, I think, that in terms of the self protection side of things if you like we need to remember that the chances of us being killed by another individual are very remote when compared to the the chances of bad lifestyle choices leading to our death i mean our heart disease is one of the biggest kind of killers we've got you know and obesity obviously plays a big part in that so, you know, in the grand scheme of things and from a, um, a self-protection perspective, you know, if you like um, keeping ourselves alive, then dealing with that excess weight uh, is something that we need to, uh, to, to address. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, one or two pounds here, you know, I mean, at various points through the year, we all kind of fluctuate, I think. But, you know, if someone's consistently uh, carrying more weight than they need, then that, that's something that uh, they need to work on. I, I also think as well, when we're talking about overweight students, as I said, it, it should be a temporary thing. P people start that way. Then if the martial arts are working for them, they're improving the quality of their life, they're improving their health, they're helping to establish um, good habits regards to health and, and, and that discipline as well to, to, to limit food intake, then what we should see happen is we should see people start to lose weight. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, you should, if people are serious about the martial arts, they shouldn't be two or three years into training and still be overweight. Um, because if, if they are, then there's something about that training that's, that's it's not working for them. It, it's not delivering the results we would expect it to deliver. I also, one of the things it's, uh, that I really don't like um, to see is out-of-shape instructors. Because uh, we've got to lead from the front with this. We've got to lead by example. So, you know, it's um, a, a really nice story on this is uh, that Jeff Thompson told me. That apparently uh, um, there was a, a woman once took her son. Her son used to eat a lot of rubbish food. And she took her son to see Gandhi and said, you know, will you please tell him to stop eating, you know, so much rubbish and sweets and things. So he said, yeah, yeah I'll do that, but bring him back in a week. So the woman walks away and a week later she brings him back and Gandhi turns around to him and says, you know, don't eat sweets. So the mother asks, you know, what, what, okay, fair enough, but, but why did you have to wait a week? He said, well, I had to stop eating sweets. <laughs> so, so Gandhi himself wasn't prepared to give advice that he wasn't following, you see, and I think that's, there's a good lesson in that for all of us. Um, it, it always kind of, um, it's laughable, really, when you've got a guy standing at the front of a class whose belt he can only tie around once, who's then telling the students about the importance of working hard, which he obviously doesn't, because if he did, he wouldn't be in that physical state. And then the other one is, you know, it talks about self-discipline, when he obviously hasn't got the discipline to, you know, 
walk past the pie shop, you know. Um, so it's martial arts. It's one thing if someone's injured or you know, and you're ill or something like that, and you can't train the way you want to. That's that's different. But to to, to make the choice to become um, overweight, I think doesn't give your students a, a great example to follow. So general thoughts on overweight students, if they're greatly overweight, then they need to take medical advice on that. If they're slightly overweight, then hopefully the training will address that. And it's important we get them to push the boundaries without pushing so far outside them that they end up uh, hurt or injured. You know, we'll give them support and encouragement, and then hopefully as time goes on, the weight will, uh, will start to drop. Um, like I say, in my class, we don't have any, um, there's, none of my students are overweight, you know, simply because that's not the way that we do things, you know. Um, they might be overweight when they start, but they don't stay that way. You know, they're all in pretty good shape. And one thing that may help with this as well, that I was told a long time ago, and it, it, in my experience it's been true, that, that I was told that if you can make somebody exercise and watch the diet for six weeks, consistently for six weeks, they'll do it for the rest of the day. So they're very likely to do it for the rest of the day. On the grounds that once they've done something for six weeks, it's starting to become a habit. You know, it's the way that they normally live their lives. Those habits are getting ingrained. The other thing is that after six weeks, they can normally see and feel the benefits. Um, so obviously, you know, if you have a diet for a week or a fortnight, well, you don't see or feel anything really. But after six weeks, it's, well, do you know what? I feel a bit better. You know, I look a bit better. You know, I've got more energy than I had. And then people start to realize, you know, the payoffs, if you like, of that lifestyle and that lifestyle starting to get a bit uh, habitual. So as instructors, when we get people in, that's the trick really, to just encourage them and support them and to to lead an active lifestyle, even for just, you know, that six weeks period. If we can get them to do that, then hopefully they'll they'll see the benefits and and, and that'll kind of uh, continue from there. I hope that's of of some use. Uh, Carlos also asked about warming up, you know, how much is too much, basically. Uh, And my point is that a a warm-up should be just that. It shouldn't be a workout in itself. We also need to acknowledge that when we structure our warm, uh, warm-ups, one person's warm-up can be another person's workout. So we need to allow uh, room for um, variation within it so that the fit guys can do whatever's been asked of them and get up to a really high level and the not-so-fit guys can work at their level. So um, this is why I always like to do things in warm-ups on like you know time basis rather than repetition basis. Um, you also see people sometimes when they're doing warm-ups, where they're doing press-ups and sit-ups and squats, that's training that. That's, that's not warm-ups. What warm-ups should do is gradually raise the heart rate, get the joints mobilized, uh, give a short stretch to the muscles as well. Again, it's really common. I see this a lot in martial arts where people do developmental big, big stretches at the start of the session. That's, that's not when they should be done. They should be done at the end of the session. Uh, when we're warming up, it should be just that. So, so people aren't completely fatigued. And again, a lot of this depends on, well, what are you warming up for? You know, and if I was warming my students up to work on like some technique, then I would get them warm, I'd get them sweating, you know, I'd get them so they're warm but comfortable. If I want them to uh, put them under severe distress and to get them to, to, to work on technique or when they're, they're absolutely exhausted, then that, that warm-up will keep on going and keep on going and get them to that point. So, so it all depends on what you're warming up for. So if you were practicing technique and the students go, well, I can hardly hold my arms up, you know, I mean, I'm so exhausted from the warm-up that I can't do the technique. Well, that's, that's, that's bad lesson planning, really. Yeah, so maybe, you know, it'd be nice to do a podcast on warming up as well, too. So, so one thing for me for the warm-ups as well is I, not only do they prepare you physically, but I think the warm-up should perform you mentally. So those who have trained at my dojo will know we, we fight um, as part of the warm-up. I don't mean full-on fight, obviously, because it's a warm-up, but they'll move around, they'll throw punches at one another, they have a little bit of a grapple, they'll play for various positions, um, uh, do a little bit of you know shadow sparring as well as working with each other and things, but we start thinking uh, combat right from the very beginning. Uh, and the reason I do that is because I think a lot of karate classes do this thing where they go, okay, we warm-up, uh, we do basics, we do kata, we do pair work, and then we fight at the end. Okay, then we all go home. So the trouble is in the student's mind, everything's disconnected. Now, to me, what we should do is, uh, you know, warm up by fighting. We do our basics to get good at fighting. We do our pad work to support our fighting skills. Uh, we do our kata to support our fighting skills. Our bunkai drills to support our fighting skills. It should all be fighting. So as part of the warm-up, I like them to do a little bit of uh, very, very light, very, very gentle kind of uh, grappling drills and striking drills. So it reminds them why they're there as well. So, um, But yeah, okay, so how, how much is too much? Well, it depends. But I would suggest that if you're exhausted at the end of the warm-up, that's not a warm-up, that's training, that is. Um, and the final question we've got this month, there were, there were more, but obviously we're running out of time and um, uh, some of them take longer 
to answer than others maybe. We've got one from uh, Bob Hopwood, and Bob says, how do we give credit to you when presenting techniques we've learnt from your materials without at the same time claiming any authority to teach your methods? And it goes on, because for example, I might want to say, this is what I believe this to be. I might want to credit you as a source, whether I don't want to use your name to validate or bolster my position. But I appreciate the question, Bob, actually, because I get asked it a lot. It's something I make very clear at the seminars, really, because I do want people to make use of the information. Um, I really do want that. I'm not one of these people who uh, puts things out there and then complains when people make use of it. The whole point of it being put out there is so that people hopefully do find it useful and do make use of it. So I think kind of really the, the answer's in the question. So um, how do we give credit to you to pres when presenting your techniques we've learned from your materials? Well, if you want to, and there's no need to really, because after a certain time, what anyone's ever learnt from me will become theirs. But if you feel, and it's always appreciated when someone has something nice to say about you, but if you want to say, you know, this drill is one of Ian's, or I got this idea from Ian, or, or whatever, then you just simply say that. That that would be great, and it's appreciated. But bear in mind, you don't need to do that for an eternity, because very quickly, I find, when people have started practicing those drills, they very quickly become theirs. They become their own drills. So it's now your drill. So take credit for what you've learned and what you've done with it. That's all part of the learning process. Don't need to keep referring back to me. And the next thing is is where it says uh, without claiming any authority to teach your methods. Dead simple, really. Again, just don't claim any authority to teach my methods. <laughs> um, uh, anybody who's um, – just to make this dead quick, but those who – I have my approach and my method, the two separate things to me. My, my method is the details of what I teach to my own students. It's what I grade them under and whatever. And the um, approach is what I teach at the seminars and put out in the books and things. And this is me saying this is what I do, hopefully bits of this will be useful in what you do. So the method's very specific and the approach is more general. Uh, but anyone who's got any authority from me to teach either of those will have an, a certificate to that effect because uh, I'm you know, pretty good at making sure that's the case. So people who've been through my instructor's program who uh, will therefore uh, be teaching my approach, so it'll be their material, but they've used my approach as part of developing their own material, if you like. Uh, they'll have a certificate from me to prove that that's the case. Uh, anyone who's been a long-term student of mine, has been graded by me in my methods, will have a certificate from me to say that's the case as well. So, uh, although we have had people claiming to teach my methods in the past that don't have any authority to do so, it's dead easy to check, because you just ask someone, can I have the certificate, please? And if they don't show you it, then they probably haven't got it. Um, so yeah, so uh, again, just to make this clear, I say this at the seminars, anything that I put out, if people like it and they, they find it useful, they want to take you back to the club, uh, they want to practice it and make it part of what they do, that's fantastic because that's kind of all, always the mission. I, I love hearing that. We've had that a lot recently with the, the more recent DVDs. Uh, the Beyond Bunkai DVD and the Pinan Hian series, The Complete Fighting System, because those DVDs have drills on them that people can just basically pick off, off the shelf and start using. Um, I, I know of at least 50, 60 clubs that are now using those drills in their own practice. Some of those groups are known to me, some of them aren't. But, you know, so long as they're not claiming, you know, I, I'm teaching this with Ian's authority, no problem with that. I'm really, really happy with, because I, obviously I can't vouch for the quality of how it's been taught. That's the point. Uh, but if they're taking that information and, and making it and using it, and that's that's wonderful. That's exactly what I want. I, I, thinking aloud, really, I guess the only other issue would be if someone bought um, uh, one of my DVDs um, a week later, filmed their own version of the DVD, having changed nothing, and then put it out as their own. Uh, that would be problematic, obviously, because be like kind of copyright infringement but 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 again having taken my material and use it as inspiration for your own material that's wonderful that is you know i mean i hope that, that i do encourage people to do that and uh, um that all adds to the knowledge pool that we can all draw on so um I say I do get that question a lot, you know, people saying, oh, I like this technique that you talk, can I teach it? Of course you can. If, if you've been to my seminars, if you've bought the books, you've bought the DVDs, you, you like what I'm presenting, uh, you've learnt that, you know, you've made the effort to get it, you've purchased it by buying the book or DVDs to come to the seminars, then you make use of that in your own teaching. Um, and, you know, if you want to credit me with it, that's fine, but as I say, after a quick period of time, it should become yours. So you should be claiming credit for what you've done with it, really. Um, and in terms of authority to teach, well, don't claim it if you haven't got it. And then it's it's all very straightforward and very uh, very simple. So so thank you for that one, Bob. Uh, I appreciate that question, um, and I hope the answer was of uh, of use to everybody. 
Okay, so I thought, well, that'll be uh, a little bit longer than intended. <laughs> I can never get to the point, can I? You know, I don't know how many questions that was. Five, six? Wow. But anyway, I hope that's of value to you. I hope there's, there's plenty of information in there for you. Um, and we'll do the same thing again next month when we, uh, we ask for questions uh, for next month's podcast. Well, that concludes this month's podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the main section, and I hope you enjoyed the question and answer section. Uh, as always, my intention is, you know, hopefully you find them entertaining, you, you find it uh, interesting and, and thought-provoking. Uh, I'm not saying that my answers to any of those questions are the definitive answers, or that I am the fountain of all knowledge, and if you ask me your questions, I will be bestow my wisdom upon you um, anyone who knows me knows that's not right um, but but I hope they are interesting I hope you find them thought provoking and I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening in so thank you for doing that it really warms my heart to see that you know thousands of people do listen to these podcasts so so uh, thank you to every single one of you also like to thank those who um, have purchased the, you know the books the DVDs the downloads who've attended the seminars because these podcasts are free to anyone who wants to listen to them but they're obviously not free to make you know it, it, it takes a lot of my time and there's other expenses as well in terms of the equipment and everything else you know the web hosting blah 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 um so those people who are you know have bought books dvds and have attended seminars organized seminars uh, the money generated from those uh, gives me the time and obviously the, the financial resources to produce all this free material too so uh, so thank you to everyone who does that because obviously um, you're the people who keep the whole thing rolling along so um, until I see you next month, uh, you might want to follow us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Ian Abernethy, I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y, where I'm on there uh, most days. I uh, put regular updates on there and links to things that I hope you'll find interesting. So um, yeah, please pop along to Facebook and follow us if you're not already. And on Twitter, uh, at twitter.com forward slash Ian Abernethy as well, or at Ian Abernethy. You can find me that way too. So, um, okay, thanks once again, everybody. Thanks for listening in. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this month's podcast. I'll be back with a new one very, very soon. And until then, have a great month, and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.